Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 48th edition of New Directors New Films runs March 27th through April 7th, introducing New York audiences to the work of emerging filmmakers from around the world. Throughout its rich nearly half-century history, New Directors has brought previously little-known talents like Spike Lee, Chantal Ackerman, B. Gunn, and Kelly Reichardt to wider audiences. This year's opening night selection is Chinoya Chuku's Clemency, winner of the Grand Jury Prize in the U.S. Dramatic Competition at this year's Sundance Film Festival. The film is an enthralling drama anchored by a powerhouse performance from the great Alfred Woodard as a prison warden struggling with the morality of capital punishment after years of working on death row. Chuku joined us for a Q&A after the screening. Let's go to that now. Thank you again for being here. That was quite a screening. Um, I'm going to start with just a, a, a two-part question for you, um, which I think will sort of set the stage. If you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to this subject matter in the first place, and I'm especially curious about why you decided to make a film from the point of view of a warden. Yes. Yeah, so um, my th- this film really started in 2011. So in, on, in September 2011, there was a black man named Troy Davis who was executed in a Georgia state prison. And leading up to his execution, hundreds of thousands of people around the world were protesting against his execution, including several retired wardens and directors of corrections. And they band together and wrote a letter to the governor urging for clemency for Troy, not just on the basis of uh, possible innocence, but they spoke to the emotional and psychological consequences they knew from, um, the, from firsthand experience the prison staff would have um, after being sanctioned to carry out the execution of Troy. And so the morning after he was executed, so many of us were feeling, fe- having feelings of frustration and anger and sadness. And I thought to myself, if we're all feeling this way, what must it be like for the people who had to kill him to carry out the execution? What does it mean for your livelihood to be tied to the taking of human life? And so that was kind of the seed that was planted. And so then in 2013, I made the decision that this was going to be the next film I was going to tell, I was going to make. This is going to be the next story I was going to tell. And it really put me on this really intense four and a half year journey of, of research and really committing my life to um, this world and, and, and the advocacy and activism around this world. And I decided to tell the story from the perspective of the warden because I thought that it would be a much more complicated, nuanced way of examining the the costs of incarceration and capital punishment through one of the perpetrators of that system. Um, and I think that it, it, it's a perspective we haven't seen before, and it's a unique way to get at the humanities tied to this ecosystem of incarceration. Can you talk a little bit about the research process, which I think really comes across in the film? Because, I mean, obviously, it obviously is a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but it is it's such an incredibly um, detailed and process-oriented film. Um, and I'm struck by the film, separate from the subject, how rare it is to see films about work really and films about like kind of you know I mean obviously the film is is about this issue but it's also really a film about like day-to-day work you know and like it it clearly comes from close observation on your part so I'm just and 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 also how you've really created this entire ecosystem not just the warden but everyone 
around her. So if you could, I mean, it's obviously it was a many year long research yeah. process. You don't have to talk <laughs> us through. Yes. But a little bit about you know how how you started and. Well, it started with with secondary research. So I spoke with many of the people, many of the retired wardens and directors of corrections who wrote that initial letter to the governor um, for clemency for Troy. And then I I, inter I spoke with many more death row lawyers and wardens and different kinds of corrections officials and people who were incarcerated or are incarcerated. And I was living in New York City at the time when I did that first kind of leg of secondary research. And then I decided to move to Ohio. And uh, I volunteered on a clemency case for a woman named Tyra Patterson who was serving a life sentence uh, for crimes she didn't commit. Tyra has since received clemency a little over a year ago, so that's great. Yes. <laughs> but I volunteered and, on her case and worked very closely with her legal team and was a media representative for her case. And I spent a lot of time um, talking with Tyra when she was incarcerated and, and several other women who were incarcerated. And that really, and I spent about a year or two years doing that. And, th and I, I was spending a lot of time in the prison and observing a lot and, and, and talking with the warden and, and the other correction staff. And then I, uh, that, that led me to my advocacy work of, um, of, of really advocating for people who are incarcerated. And so I created a film program in that same women's prison that Tyra was incarcerated in, where I taught incarcerated women to make their own short films from script to screen. And that once, uh, oh, <laughs> um, that was not, because of research for clemency, that just came out of that process. And that deepened my understanding of the humanities that exist between prison walls. That also built, developed trust in the wardens around the state of Ohio to, to really talk to me um, and, and be open and give me access to um, more, more parts of the prison. And um, I, I observed more and absorbed more. And I volunteered for about 13 other um, clemency cases um, before leaving, moving out of Ohio. Um, and all of that informed the world building of clemency. And one of the things that, I, that struck me the most about the space of a prison through, through my work in the prisons was how the industrial starkness of a prison and the emotional detachment. And that to me is the horror in the space. It is, no, it is this, it, it, and so I wanted to make the film uh, kind of replicate that in the film where it's not very little music because there's no, no music can do what the heartbeat monitor does in the botched execution scene. And what makes this, this story that much more harrowing is the silence. And that's something that always struck me every time I would step into the prison and, and teach. So just, just thinking about the range of people that you talk to, you talk to the, the wardens, you talk to lawyers, you talk to people who are incarcerated. Did you speak to the people who are actually doing the executions? The, yeah, the, so I talked to I, um, board, yeah. so um, corrections officers, right. majors, um, directors of corrections um, who have overseen executions or physically handled the executions. We also flew in um, a former warden, Dr. Alan Alt, who is now an anti who is now an anti death penalty advocate. We, but he was a, a former warden in Texas um, and has overseen executions in Georgia, and we flew him on set. And he actually walked the actors through the blocking of the execution scenes mm. and, and, um, and was drawing from his own firsthand experience. In, I'm curious about in the writing of this film um, and actually even the making of it, how you balance your role of, um, on the one hand, advocacy and activism and being a filmmaker and an artist. 
you know, because for me, I feel like this film is a great activist work because it's also like a really powerful work of art, you. you know, and I feel like that's because of the humanity of the characters, because of every, I, I actually love, Alfred Woodard is obviously great, but I really love what you've done with the secondary characters in this film too, in terms of how they're written and how they're performed. So, you know, I'm just curious about that role, that, that balance, because you obviously have a point of view. Mm -hmm. You obviously are an activist, but you also are making a film. Yeah, so I, the most important part of the advocacy work that I did when I was in Ohio was was speaking to the humanities of the people who I, I was working with and teaching, the people who were incarcerated. And, and, and so when I was approaching the making of this film, I just always believed that this, people will be able to enter this quote unquote issue, be able to enter the kind of politics of it if they can, if they can connect their humanity to the humanities of the character. And so it's not about me being on a soapbox. It's not about me telling people what they should think about different political issues. I do think that if one of the things that can help dismantle the prison industrial complex, one of the things that can really help um, perpetuate change and transformation is if we truly, truly see and treat people as human beings. Um, but the problem is that we discard and we dehumanize disproportionately. And so that's really my art, that was my artistic approach and, and uh, to this film, to be as compassionate and humane as possible without telling people how to think and just allow, give them space to feel and then they can make their own judgment from there. Can you talk about um, casting? With, did you write the role of Bernardine with Alfre Woodard in, in mind? Um, no, I mean, when I, when I so I, I view screenwriting and directing as two separate right. art forms. And so when I was, when I'm writing, I'm, I'm writing, I'm in it, I'm, I'm just, I'm really just thinking of narrative. Um, afterwards though, after, after we started getting the film out there and trying to get funding for it, Alfre was attached two years before we went into pre-production. So she was attached pretty early and, um, when, when my producer, Bronwyn, and I were talking about, you know, who can play Bernadine, as soon as my producer said the word Alfre, it's like the, everything in the world made sense. <laughs> and um, very few people, I, I think she's one of our greatest living actors, you know, and yeah, I think she, she is. And it just made all the sense in the world, and, and she emotes so much without speaking, and she emotes so much with her eyes, and, and this is a very emotionally contained character, and so everybody just knew that she was, she was the one. And without, I mean, and, and, and Wendell was attached even before Alfre, and um, I've always been a big fan of his work, and it just seemed to make sense that they, those two would play off of each other, and I've been a fan of Aldous, um, uh, Aldous's work in Underground. And um, I, there was one episode in particular I was watching at Underground, and then I called Bronwyn, and I was like, oh, this is, this is Anthony, was when um, he didn't speak for like 10, 15 minutes, but he said everything with his eyes in this one episode. And I was like, all right, that's our, that's our Anthony. Can you talk about that amazing scene with Danielle Brooks? Whew, yes. Um, so uh, this is actually Danielle's first film role, <laughs> which 
was sh I didn't know that it was shocking. Um, and I have been a fan of Danielle with Orange is the New Black um, and also the color purple. And uh, I just thought her and Aldis would look so good together and in such a real humane way. And working with the two of them on set, we spent a couple hours on set really digging into the scene and really finding the emotional beats and the layers. It was one of the most invigorating directing experiences I've ever had because the three of us were in it and trying to find it together and we were open and vulnerable. And she, she, gave, she went in. She totally went in and was made herself so open to the process. And she and Aldis, like Aldis gave 100% when we were on Danielle. Danielle gave 100% when we were on, you know, Aldis. And they, they, they just fed each, off of each other so beautifully and brilliantly. And I mean, she, we, she's in one scene and it's just, I think it's memorable. It's an amazing piece of writing too. Thank scene. you. But, um, Thank you. The, I wanted to ask actually about Bernadine's character, and I don't know if statistics of this sort exist, but how common are women wardens and also women of color? Wardens? It's actually very common. So most of the wardens in, a, in the state of Ohio are black women, actually. Um, uh, a warden, a former warden of San Quentin prison, which had the late largest death row until the governor recently um, issued out an executive order to stop death penalty executions um, in the state of California. Uh, the warden there, uh, Jeannie, she was a warden there for over 20 years. Um, and, and so it's actually, and there's a female warden's union or a female warden's association. Um, so it's actually more common than you think, you know, but the media represent, rep, representation tends to be white men. And so um, it's, it's, it's much more diverse than that. Okay, last question from me before we take some from the audience. I wanted you to talk a little bit about your work with, um, your, you mentioned your cine cinematographer, Eric Branco, is here. Yes! And um, it's, I just want to talk, you to talk about how you guys managed to find visual interest in these environments, which you talk about, you know, just wanted to con convey the starkness yeah. of these kinds of institutions, but it's a really visually compelling film as well. So I want to, you know, if you can talk about the decisions that you and Eric made. Well, Eric and I have been talking about clemency for years. <laughs> um, and, and so not necessarily the visual language, but we, we, the themes of the film we've always been kind of talking about. And, and I'm sure thing, ideas have been circulating in both of our heads. And um, Eric and I have been very, very communicative, <laughs> very, very communicative about, about the visual language of the film. Once, once the film became real and we actually had money, <laughs> we were going to make this, um, uh, we would talk all the, I mean, Eric, I feel like we talk like every day. <laughs> Um, in person, text message, phones. We sent we sent photos of photo reference images, and we were both always on the same page about capturing that kind of stark, rigid, um, emotionally detached reality of the space. And it and it was really just um, us getting on the same page about what are the visual rules of this film, and making sure we do not, under any circumstances, even if we're crunched for time, veer away from that because we have to be as as rigid. And struck and as rigid in 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 the way we shoot this as we want it to look. You know. All right. I'm sure the audience has questions, so we're going to take a few. Um, if you want to raise your hand, we have microphones. Um, we'll start over here. Hi. This was just incredible, and I just want to say, like, Thank this you. is like one of the most moving films I've seen in a really long time. I wanted to ask you. You talked a little about using a former. Um, 
corrections officer or warden to walk through the execution mm -hmm. scenes, but I wanted to know more about your process, like preparing for those scenes and preparing with the actors and how you really like, because those are very traumatizing scenes to watch and I can't even imagine like playing them out. I, 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 can, I missed your very last sentence. Like I can't imagine even having to shoot that in person, like the, the execution scenes. So I'm okay. wondering like, what was that like? Um, the other thing that, well, one, one thing that we did was that we had an on-set therapist as well for those execution scenes, and that really helped. I mean, there were some extras who had to, who, who had to walk away and couldn't do it and, um, because it was just emotionally triggering. Um, but we had an, an on-set therapist um, who, who did provide that kind of like emotional support. Um, and also, I mean, I, for, I, I was constantly checking in with actors and, and, and talking about it and, um, and people, I, I felt like people came a lot, for the most part, came very prepared emotionally for this and knew what this was. And, you know, in between takes, I tried to keep it as, I mean, Eric and I both tried to keep it as joyful as possible. And I know that might sound really strange, but, um, but there had to be some relief, <laughs> as, you know, and so during lunchtime you know, during breaks, we were very, I think we were both very mindful of keeping it as light as possible um, before getting back into the intensity of it all during, uh, of shooting. Hi, um, one comment, um, visually and directorially, uh, it was exquisite and it reminded me of Brasson and I can't give a higher compliment than that, I think, uh, it just was, uh, it just evoked him and his whole, his whole genius. Anyway, um, thank you. I uh, I wonder if you're plugged into the advocacy and activist world of this theme. Is it too early yet to know whether Gavin Newsom's action uh, has already loosen things up and, and there's more of a potential for other states to follow? I mean, I, I have my kind of educated guesses. I mean, I think that there are more and more states who, there are more and more states that are finding it economically impractical you know, and it's a shame that it comes down to economics, but there are more and more states and even like more like ultra conservative states who are finding it more and more um, impractical to carry on the death penalty. So I think that there are more states, there are a growing number of states that are kind of imbalanced and teetering on the edge of whether or not they're going to um, continue the, the, the sanctioning of, of execution. So I, I, I suspect that we're going to see more and more states um, reconsidering um, continuing the death penalty. Hi, um, I'm curious, as a black woman, you know, in an industry that is uh, uh, sorely lacking in, in uh, talent such as yours, um, women of color and women in period, uh, you've got a formula that seems to have worked really well with, with your producer and your, uh, your, your DP. So are you intending to make another film with, uh, well, first of all, what's your next project? And then are you intending to work with this crew uh, again, and you know, thinking that maybe this is the magic formula. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 
culmination of many years <laughs> of being in the trenches and not just trying to make this film happen, but, uh, uh, and, and there's so many, I know many, many talented black female directors, female directors, of, you know, female directors who um, just haven't yet been given the access or the platform yet. And so um, there are a lot of us, but very few have been given access to the platform. And so I just want to acknowledge them. Um, I, I do, I, I'm getting ready. I do have my next project lined up for later this year. It's called A Taste of Power. And it's based on the memoir of Elaine Brown, who is the first and only female leader of the Black Panther Party. So I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and what, was, what was the other part of your question? What was the other part of the question? Oh, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> hey, Eric. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping, yes, Eric's, Eric, Eric's gonna be my DP um, for Taste of Power, and uh, Brahman Cornelius is an executive producer on the project, so we're gonna be working together again as well. What was your biggest challenge when creating this film? Just one? Well, what were the many <laughs> challenges that you had? <laughs> Um, oh man, uh, okay, so I would, one big challenge was um, the emotional intensity that it required. I mean, I, I had to go to some pretty dark and deep places in order to write the script and revise it and revise it and keep going back to it even through pre-production. Um, and that took an emotional toll on me. I'm pretty good at emotionally compartmentalizing. Um, but there was one day on set, uh, day five, when we shot the suicide attempt scene where I broke down in tears at the monitor. And it just, it just, just came out. And, um, and so... It, 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 took, it, it took a toll on me, and, I, and it's, I'm, I'm, it, it took a couple months, several months after shooting to just kind of like emotionally recalibrate. And so um, that, was, that was a challenge. And I mean, we shot this film in 17 days. Wow. Yeah. So that was a challenge. Uh, <laughs> that was a challenge. Um, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we didn't have $100 million for this movie. And so, you know, shooting this film 17 days for not $100 million, uh, <laughs> it was a challenge. It was a challenge. And we had to be really creative in, in our decisions. Um, and, and so I'm really, once again, a credit to Eric Bronco, who uh, was just my right hand on this and, try, and, and figuring out how to make, you know, 17 days work. Um, and find really interesting angles really quickly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so those were a couple challenges. Okay, we have time for one final question. Um, let's go with you in the front, and I'll repeat it for you if, you, if we don't have a microphone. Question about the evolution of the characters, specifically uh, Wendell Pierce's character as a husband. Well, I didn't consider that specific example because the story is not, the film's not about innocence or guilt, and so I didn't want that at all to be it. <laughs> um, uh, I think that uh, Wendell's character, Jonathan, has always been a character from the first draft who's really um, on eggshells with his wife and is really tiptoeing and really trying to figure out should he say this, should he not say this? And, and so that's something that, I, that has always been there. Um, you know, Bernadine's character, uh, 
the delicious writing challenge was figuring out how do you write a, a protagonist who is actively passive, you know, who is actively um, making the decision to not do something even though she wants to. How do you create this kind of protagonist in a way where, where how do you give her agency? Where are the spaces in the narrative that she can actually be active and, and, and have a level of agency and control? And so um, that the, figuring that out came through the revision process as well. Um, and um, through the revisions, I was able to figure out more, I was able to create more and more of a parallel between Bernadine and Anthony emotionally and really get them to a similar emotional space by the end of the film. And so those are some of the kinds of narrative revisions I made. I'm afraid we are out of time, but um, I want to thank you so much thank you. for being our opening night this year. Thank you so much. And thank you thank all Thank you coming. so much for staying for the Q&A. Thank you for watching the film. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>